0: Welcome to Pull Up a Chair. I'm Bina Mehta, chair of KPMG in the UK. And in each episode, I'll be chatting to some of the world's most influential business leaders and thinkers on sustainable growth, what it means to them and why it matters. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir John Kingman. John has held positions at the very top of government and business. As former second permanent secretary of the treasury, he was at the heart of the UK government's response to the 2008 financial crisis, managing the resolution of Northern Rock and negotiations around the refinancing of UK banks. John was the first Chair of UK Research and Innovation, overseeing government science funding of more than $8 per year, and his eponymous review of the Financial Reporting Council in 2018 recommended the wholesale reform of audit and accounting regulation. Today, He is the Chair of Life, Pensions and Investment Giant, Legal and General. John Kingman, please pull up a chair. Welcome to Pull Up a Chair. I'm going to kind of reflect on the past 15 years, the UK's been through a financial crisis. We've had Brexit. We've had the COVID. And now we're facing into the challenge of growth in a post-pandemic world. And you've had an incredibly unique perspective, having been in government Mm -hmm. and in business. So I was wondering if if we just start with, what does sustainable growth mean to you? And can we meet the needs of people, planet and profit?
1: Of course we can. Uh, We're in a bit of a hole at the moment. We've got to dig ourselves out of that hole. But I think we we know how economies grow and the exciting thing is that we know more and more about how to grow sustainably and a lot of the technologies that we need to grow sustainably are now economic. That is to say the private sector will invest big time in the technologies that we need to make the planet more sustainable. Solar is totally economic now, onshore wind is economic. Money will pour into those technologies. We just have to create the structures in which that can happen and it will happen.
0: So I'm going to pick up on the structures a little bit later in our conversation because I think that's a really important point around you know how do we help these technologies and disruptors grow but in terms of the medium to long term for Britain if you sort of step back and look at where our opportunities where do you think that growth is going to come from?
1: Well look, we have huge strengths in the UK uh, they're well understood we've got uh, a tradition of good government, we've got the rule of law, we've got great universities, we've got serious financial institutions, we've got some great businesses here. But we have also had some self-inflicted problems in the last few years, and we've got to get past those. Um, uh, I think the ingredients are there, but some of this will take real will. Take real will. Uh, some of the things that will drive growth, uh, the case has to be made to the public, uh, to allow the development, to allow the openness to the world. Mm. Uh, and that's only partly there at the moment.
0: So it's interesting you say that. So I'd like to talk about how we deliver sustainable growth. So the role of how government and business work together. And I guess also, coming from your background in financial markets, what the role of regulation is in mm-hmm. that as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, government and business do need to work together. They do work together. I don't think... The way they work together is the biggest problem we have. I think the biggest problem we have is getting business doing what it does really well, really well, getting government doing what it does really well, really well. And then there's the regulatory piece. Um, I was heavily involved in the financial crisis when I was in the Treasury. Um, And, you know, that was a colossal global event created by mismanagement of financial institutions around the world. And it's not surprising that some very, very serious lessons had to be learned and the whole regulatory framework had to be reinvented. We're now through a process of optimizing that, working out what the right balance is going forward. Um, But the fact is that the money is there, the capability to invest is there, and we've just got to make it happen.
0: So making it happen, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, can I just explore a little bit from what you've just said around the twi- uh, the financial crisis? Mm-hmm. And you, as you said, you're right at the heart of that in the various roles that you played. Do you see any parallels in the situation and the circumstances that you were dealing with then? And they are very different situations, circumstances today, but do you see any parallels from that, any learnings that we can take from that experience?
1: I think they are very different. I mean, the, the global financial crisis really came out of the financial system and massively affected the wider economy here and around the world. Uh, and that's why the consequences for financial institutions were so, were so serious. What we're dealing with now is much more, these are, these are, these are real-world events, a war, mm. uh, the aftermath of COVID and all of the um, effects that that has had on particularly the labour market but also supply chains. Yeah. Uh, and you've got, finally the re-emergence of inflation as a big force. And actually, um, you've got to go back earlier than the financial crisis. Uh, You've really got to go back to the 1970s um, to look at parallels where governments and central banks had to deal with inflation, all of the problems we're seeing in labor markets, serious strikes. The relevant lessons, I think, you've got to go back earlier than the um, the, sort of 30, 40 years ago
0: yeah and that was before our time in business john it definitely it is. is um you've you've just touched on that that uk enjoys a reputation for very strong foundations in a trusted legal framework we've got a heritage of technological innovation We've got world-class universities, and obviously one of the m- most important and largest financial markets that we do have. And so, I guess the question I was ar- would ask you is: How do what do we need to do to maintain the reputation? That's that's a broad question. I appreciate because there's lots of things in there. So maybe if we start with innovation, obviously you were chair of mm-hmm. UKRI, you know the privilege of funding um, science and research mm-hmm. across the world, and you've you've called it the you know the asset, the, go- mm-hmm. the global asset, a genuine global asset that we have. Um, And to nurture that innovation and that army of innovators that are actually really important for our growth of our country as well, what sorts of things do you think we could do to maintain that reputation?
1: Well, I think that's one area that I do feel really positive about. Um, As you say, the UK is unbelievably lucky to have the science base that we do, particularly the great universities that we have here. If you look at any global ranking of the great universities of the world, You'll have a ton of US institutions and then quite a few really serious great UK institutions, and that's kind of it. So any country outside the US would kill to have those great institutions, and I actually think that successive governments have done a good job at nurturing those investing in them, uh, and it's, it, is, it is the case that Imperial College, Cambridge, Oxford the LSE, UCL, these institutions can and do compete with the best universities in the US, despite the fact they don't have the great endowments and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, what can we do to build on that? First of all, we still have further progress to make in terms of commercializing technology and commercializing the ideas and the great science in our universities. We have made real progress. It is no longer true that you've kind of got um, academia over here and commerce over here and they they don't connect but we could still do better. I think venture capital flows have greatly improved and certainly in my, in my career, it was a big preoccupation in my time in the treasury was how we got more venture capital going, particularly early stage venture capital. We're now into, I think we've made real progress there, but there's still issues around growth capital, around getting listings in the UK. Um, uh, the other thing is we have to hold on to the openness to global talent. And that is a politically contentious area, but it is massively important to science. Science is an inherently international global endeavour and we must be able to attract and we must be willing to let in not just the great Nobel Mm. Prize winners, but the the bright young up-and-coming researchers, whether they're from India or the US or China or wherever. We have to be willing to let those people in.
0: It's a really good, important point there you make. I... If it's okay, I'd like to turn to the financial markets, mm-hmm. um, and in particular, the role of the broader sector, financial services. Um, and We've talked about you know, the value and the um, influence that stakeholders have in the whole chain to deliver sustainable growth, right? whether you're an asset owner, through to the roles that banks play, mm-hmm. organizations mm-hmm. like LNG play, all the way through to the corporates who have to deliver that growth on the mm-hmm. gro- on the ground. And sort of thinking about your sort of legal and general hat, if mm-hmm. that's okay, um, your CEO Nigel's very vocal mm-hmm. about the um, the need for investment in our cities, our infrastructure technology to across the country mm-hmm. and partly from what you've just talked about. Um, we know capital is available, you've just said mm-hmm. it's about actually deploying it in the right way. The investment case is clear. So what's stopping us from making that progress at scale?
1: Well, as you say, we, legal in general, see great opportunities around the UK. We are partnered with lots of universities. We are investing Mm. in all sorts of incredibly interesting um, opportunities around the country. Um, We don't see as much competition as we could do. Uh, Now, I think that um, uh, we are seeing more money move into these sorts of areas and finding these sorts of opportunities, including some of our competitors copying what we have done. I think that's a good and healthy thing, actually, and there's plenty of opportunity. Mm. Um, we also need to attract international capital. There's a lot of it about, and if you talk to international investors, they do have mixed feelings about the UK right now, and we have to face up to that. Um, and I think that that does reflect, frankly, a series of I described them earlier as you know self-inflicted wounds, mm-hmm. which we we have, I'm afraid, have have have, have seen. Um, we need to get past that. We need stable government that will actually. Um, demonstrate to the world that the UK is actually a great place to invest, which is what we believe, and, and we're, you know, we're putting our money where our mouth is.
0: And as business, what can we do as a community to help? I mean, I, I think there is a role for government, as you say, the attractiveness of the UK. What can business do? Uh,
1: essentially, we have to we we, we have to um, make the most of the opportunities that are out there, which I believe we we are mm-hmm. doing. We have to tell the story to investors in a way that is compelling. Again, we are doing. Um, and I think we are, you know, long-term investing institutions like LNG are demonstra- demonstrably making a success of these sorts of investments. Uh, as I say, I think our competitors are coming up alongside us more and more. I regard that as a positive and healthy thing. Um, but we we need to get more of the world's capital here. Uh, and that is, I, I believe, there's a sort of shared interest between the investing community, the business community and government to make that happen. If only we can get the messages clear and make them credible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Very, very true. It's like collaborative and shared interest and alignment of interests. So I'd like to talk a little bit about managing through times of crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, you were involved in the nationalisation of Northern Rock in 2008, as well as a number of organisations at that time. And one of the biggest things that I'm mindful of is... Whenever you're going through something like that, it's not just the economics, it's also about the people. So I'd like to just understand from your reflections in terms of what you learned from that Mm -hmm. experience.
1: Well, I was in the Treasury at the time. Um, It was a very intense um, period. Um, It was very challenging. I think the the team in the Treasury did an absolutely amazing job. Um, What you learn about people under pressure is a lot. And bluntly, there are people in life who create problems and there are people in life who solve problems and you find out the difference under, under conditions of extreme uh, stress. The other thing I would say about that time is, um, you know, we, we were dealing with these enormous financial institutions, RBS at the time, which, which the government took a majority stake in, was the largest bank in the world by assets at the time. Um, I think we learned something... From you know, why did some institutions get through that time intact? Why did some fail, have to be bailed out by the government? I think actually a huge amount of that came down to culture. Um, it wasn't so much about the complexities of the intricacies of the CDO squares mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, I think that you know w- we we in picking up the pieces we necessarily discovered quite a lot about the institutions we were we were taking into public ownership. Um, and what went wrong in the places that blew up was generally that they did, I think, have cultures that, that were unhealthy. Uh, and in particular, in financial institutions, uh, if you consistently target growth of your top line, that is a very dangerous way to run a bank or any financial institution. Uh, And if I look at Northern Rock was a medium-sized building society. RBS was this gigantic investment bank bolted onto a British retail bank. So very different institutions. But what they had in common was they were both run on top-line growth, and that is a dangerous thing to do.
0: Interesting. So just picking up on the point of culture, so a lot of people talk about the role of purpose, especially when you look at sustainable, long-term growth for the benefit of people, planet and um, communities as well. Um, what do you think the role of purpose is? I and mean, obviously in LNG you've also got a purpose as well. What's the role of purpose?
1: Well, I, th- I think I can only really talk to you about about what that means at Legal in General, which I see right. close up. And um, uh, I do think we have a strong sense of purpose. I think Nigel Wilson, the chief executive, is a very powerful advocate of that. But actually it predates him, the sense that, that LNG um, was about more than simply... You know maximizing the p l each year um and I can tell you that that strong sense of purpose is very, very important to our people, many of whom could choose to work elsewhere, possibly could earn more elsewhere than they can earn at lNG um, uh, but they choose to work at LNG because they believe it's a good place to work and they like to work at lNG. It's also something that's very important to our clients I would say particularly a, a large part of our client base are pension fund trustees uh, and ultimately pension fund trustees are they're either investing their assets with us or they are sometimes uh, asking us to take on the assets and liabilities of the pension scheme onto our balance sheet and therefore they are trusting us to pay the pensions of their their members for decades to come. That's quite a trust to place in a financial institution, mm. and I do believe that the, the the values that we have as a firm and the purpose that we espouse is something that our pension fund clients find genuinely compelling and attractive.
0: I love that way the way you articulate that trust and growth and how it is absolutely hand in hand. Right, you can't achieve one without the other. As you reflect um, over the last twelve, fourteen, fifteen years. How do you think the role and responsibilities of boards has changed? And that's in the context of what you've just talked about, you know, in terms of culture, the balancing of profits and purpose. How do you think the role has changed? Well, I think,
1: I think um, uh, you could easily argue, I, th- I think you can convincingly argue that actually the UK has one of the best, possibly the best corporate governance framework in the world. Uh, And that's a good thing, and it's a precious thing, and we shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't undervalue that. But um, what we don't have so many of are truly great global companies, Mm. Uh, and so I think I I don't believe. Sometimes people say, "Well, you know, we don't need all this corporate governance bureaucracy, and if we if we didn't have any of that, then you know the companies would be more successful." I think that's complete rubbish. Um, But I think it is true that. The challenge for boards of British companies is more about um, building long-term value than it is about further progress on corporate governance.
0: And that's a really interesting point. I just want to just pick up on. You talk about driving value long-term versus just corporate governance, but to govern a business to deliver sustainable growth? Is there anything from your experience that you'd say, actually, these are the two or three things I would really focus on?
1: Well, timescales and time horizons matter here. Mm. Um, And again, going back to the Legal and General Board, we we, we make these extraordinary promises to pay people's pensions for many years to come. And I think I and my board colleagues are acutely aware Mm -hmm. of that responsibility. We have to be around in 30 years' time to pay these pensions. Um, And I think that inevitably creates what I believe to be a healthy focus on making sure we will be there and that the company will be in good shape. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean we haven't haven't got the pressures that all companies have to, to, to deliver good results from year to year. Um, but I think we find that balance quite easy to strike because of the nature of the business. And I do think that's a healthy thing.
0: And I think you're you know you're in a business where that is almost forced upon you because you've got to match yes. these long term expectations. Yes. And and some of the things that you know I think about and talk about when I'm talking to my colleagues is how do we balance that long term outcome, which is beyond our tenure, but is absolutely fundamental the yeah. success and longevity yeah. of our business and, and, yeah. and what we do for clients. So it's not that different, but it's different yeah, yeah you've got a slightly different um outlook yeah. for it. Um I, I have to ask you about your review into the Financial Reporting no. Council in 2018. <laughs> very, very important milestone um, in regulate, not just in regulatory reform, but also in driving change in our, our profession as in the audit and accountancy. Um, I'd love to hear your views on whether the corporate governance ecosystem is evolving now in the way that you might have hoped at that time, because that was four years ago now.
1: I, I think we've made a huge amount of progress. I, I, I mean, just to go back, um, uh, when I did the review of the frc that organization it, it was badly broken um i described it at the time as a as a as a, as a slightly ramshackle house um uh, that needed to be rebuilt um i want to pay tribute to to the leadership of the frc particularly john thompson the chief executive um who i think has done an absolutely superb job at um rebuilding the house mm. um and uh, certainly Um, the vision that I hope I tried to lay out in that review, I think he has absolutely gone on um, to to realise that. There is, however, a critical missing piece of the jigsaw, which is the government has not yet brought forward the legislation that is needed to give the the regulator the powers it needs. Um, And I do think that is uh, a pity. Um, I think it is needed. Um, uh, you've got a regulator doing a very serious job, which is a f- effectively having to do a lot of what it does by voluntary negotiation with those it regulates. Mm. And I just don't think that's right. It's absolutely not how the rest of the world does it. It's an, it's an antiquated British thing that we need to fix. Uh, I think it will get fixed in the end. Um, uh, but I, as I say, I do think, uh, subject to that, I do think the FRC have done a very good job of... Um, of 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 um, rebuilding the house.
0: Great, thank you very much. And talking about that, I, sh- I appreciate you sharing that. Um, if I could turn a little bit about to a bit about you. Of course. So if you could go back in time and yeah, I know, I know it feels like a long time away, doesn't it? But if you could go back and share a bit of advice to your younger Sir John King, mm-hmm. what would that be and why?
1: If I think back to you know when I when I started working, came out of university, um, it was a different world. Uh, I wasn't that long ago but uh, it was a different world in particular I think there was much more of a sense uh, then that um, people did careers for life um, and actually the world is a is a is a more complex place than that and actually one that's I think richer in opportunity um uh, but I remember when i when I um, came out of university thinking to myself well I'm not sure what I want to do and maybe this is a problem because I clearly ought to know, and I ended up in the in the Treasury slightly by accident, um, uh, and it was a lucky accident because because um, you know I hugely enjoyed my time there and did some um, uh, jobs that I feel absolutely proud of. But it's also you know in my time in the Treasury, I'd slightly unusually went in and out of the organisation. I spent some time on the Financial Times, I spent some time in an investment bank. Um, that was then rather unusual. Um, I suppose, therefore, you know, what's the advice? The advice is perhaps not to think of careers as a sort of greasy pole where you have to climb to the, ever, to the next step on, on a single ladder. Um, partly because only a very small number of people will um, get to the top of any individual greasy pole. Secondly, because the world has got more complicated. Thirdly, because there's a lot of luck in life. Uh, and sometimes luck works out in unpredictable ways. Um, and I don't think I knew that when I was 21.
0: That's a lovely piece of advice. I wish I'd had that when I was coming through. <laughs> um, you've held some really important roles in the arts. You know, mm-hmm. You're know, um, you on the role at Opera House and the National Gallery. And whilst we've talked a lot about business, I just wondered in terms of um, arts and culture, which are clearly important to you, is there anything that you you've, you've learned in that world that you think is helpful to reflect on?
1: Uh, it's a really good question, interesting question. I mean, one thing that's interesting about both of the institutions you've mentioned is that they are truly, properly world-class at what they do, um, at least as world-class as any British company could claim to be in, in the commercial sphere. Um, and um, yet... You know, the people that work in those institutions don't get paid enormous sums of money. Um, But what they are is they are massively, massively committed to what they do. Um, And that sense in the organisation is, in my experience, incredibly um, powerful. So at the Opera House, you know, it's not just the... um, the, the prominent people, the, yeah. the conductor or whatever, it's, it's the wig makers, it's the people who do the lighting, um, the people who move the sets, the people who make the sets. They all love the place, just love the place. And that sense of commitment is what makes them really good at what they do as an institution. And... And it goes back to what you were saying about purpose. I think in the commercial world, if you can capture anything like yeah. that sentence, yeah. you've really got something going for you.
0: So thank you for that. Um, we've been talking about sustainability right, in a business sense. Um, what sustains you as John?
1: <laughs> well, I enjoy what I do, for a start. Um, uh, I enjoy my, um, you know, my is very important to me. I, I suppose the other thing I would say is um, uh, I'm very lucky. I live um, right at the centre of London, I have done for a long time, um, and... You know, I just, I just love making the most of um, this extraordinary global city, and London is still just a very remarkable place to live, um, with astonishing things to enjoy uh, and a tremendous buzz. And you know, that that is, um, that's a very, it's a very precious and enjoyable thing.
0: We're a lovely place to end. Having lived and worked abroad, I absolutely agree. Um, What I have taken away, though, you talked about committed to what they do in the arts world, Mm -hmm. and it's absolutely clear that everything you've touched in your career you've been committed to, because there is a common thread across all of this, right, which is stability, economic growth, Mm -hmm. and in the financial sector Mm -hmm. broadly. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I would take away from our interview, John. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for joining me on Pull Up A Chair today, whether you're at home, at work or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from top business leaders on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet and profit. Goodbye.